Um, welcome everybody to Tetui. This is an informal conversation, it's not a lecture, but um, we are glad that uh, you're here with us on this beautiful day. Thank you for sacrificing yourself to art instead of sunshine. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm Gabriela Sagado, I'm, I'm the artistic director and curator here at Tetui. Um, welcome Charlotte, Graham, and Mary Sewell. We are going to let Charlotte and Mary discuss today about the inspiration behind this work, um, which uh, is titled Fakaiwakawa Moana, Acidic Oceans. And as you can see, it's a mirror and light and text installation that um, articulates some concepts in relation to the ocean and its, uh, the, the contents of the ocean. The, the things that the ocean gives us and the things that make the ocean suffer. So by reflecting the light, my, my, my fascination with this piece is that we are creating the current marine environment here because they're shimmering, they are, they are projecting, and they are reaching us wherever we are, and you can see all the, the reflections on the walls, which I find very mesmerizing. So I'll talk very briefly about who the speakers are, and after that I will let you discuss um, the science that inspired this work when Charlotte started having conversations with Mary about um, the acidification of the ocean. What do, does that mean? What is the effect of acidification? What can we do against that process and uh, to prevent more acidification? And... Um, are, you know, the artists and the scientists will come together in from different fields to express this in in two different but complementary ways. So, Shallow Graham is um, Parihaoraki, Parihaikato, and Latikotimana artist based in West Auckland. She's an interdisciplinary artist who uses different materials to engage in indigenous dialogue. Graham's work has addressed social, cultural, and political issues for more than 20 years. Dr. Mary Sewells from Auckland University's recent research has focused on the impact of ocean acidification on early development in sea urchins and green shell mussels from habitats including the Hauraki Gulf, Firth of Thames, and coastal regions of Antarctica. So without further ado, I'll let you have your conversation. I will sit over there and let you be <laughs> on your own. Thank you. Tēnā tātou katoa, e mihi nui ki a koutou katoa i te ranei ki a haramai ki a whakarongo ki a mawako Mary. Mahi, 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 i raro i tēnei kaupapa pai te kaitia ki tanga o te mōna I te whare te tuhi, tēnā koe, harane, tēnā koe, harane, kia whuatu, kia mātau, ko akunhoa, tēnei wahi, hei whakatū, mātau whakaro. Mihi nui kia koe, taku hoa, mihi nui nui kia koe hoki, mōtō mahi, he mahi pai o inei whakaritinga katoa, ka mōhe o hau he tino tukumahe kue. Tēnā koe, mihi aroha. Kia koutou katoa, he mihi nui kia koutou katoa, Chris. Taku hoa mō te kauri daibat, te curator o tēnā. Mihi mahana kia koe, he aku hoa mahi toi. Mihi aroha ki a koutou katoa ki a haramai ki a whakarongo koutouko ki te tira nei. Whirino ki a koe Mary. Ka mōhio koe i rongoa a harui tō kōrero e pāna ki he whakawaikoa mōna nā te mahi taumaha i hangai au i nei mūna mahi mōreira. Mihi nunui ki a koe me o hoa no 
Queen University, um, Nā Tera Mahi, ka um, tae tātou te whakamoro, te, um, te uh, kia tūpato, kia um, mahi, um, te wahi pai. Nō reira tēnā koe. Pēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēpēp
and she showed, she took it with her and she showed um, um, the conference there and um, that's how I got to hear Mary, Mary sent me a message. Um, uh, yeah, and um, do you want to say a little bit and then I come back or shall I talk about the work? No, whatever, just mm-hmm. go with the flow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think at this stage, I might, um, if you don't mind, I might get you to, because um, I'd be really interested. Mary sent us an email recently. She, they've just found, done some more research and um, had some findings. Um, and um, maybe we could hear that, and then I'll come back to talking about the work. Yep, sure. So, thank you. so just, just, I'm a scientist, not an artist, and... Um, and I teach university students, so if I'm pitching it wrong, please just interrupt and, and uh, recorrect. And I'm happy to, to take any questions um, um, that you might have if I, if I overstep the boundaries. Because I know scientists are scary and many people haven't done science for a long time. And I'm trying to get better at being a science communicator, but it's always good to have a recheck of, of where we're going. So just to clarify something, I actually don't work with NEWA, I work with NEWA. So, uh, yes, I've been at the university all this time. So what um, uh, the New Zealand government <clears throat> realised that ocean acidification was going to be a big problem for New Zealand because, of course, we are a maritime nation. We have one of the largest exclusive economic zones in the world. Um, we, the contact with the sea is something we all treasure. And for many people, kaimoana from the sea is also really important. And um, so the government recognised that this um, was something that we needed to find out a bit more about. There's been quite a lot of research done overseas, but very little in New Zealand. And so they put together this big grant, and we, um, as a, unusually for New Zealand, we came together, a whole bunch of us, um, from uh, four universities and um, from NEWA itself and the Cawthron Institute, all to bring our expertise to this because this was deemed to be a, a critical um, a problem. So we started off with three areas that we, um, focal areas that was sort of related to where people were. So uh, the Firth of Thames was a focal area um, for ocean acidification because it's the worst, the worst situation we have. Um, and then we also work in the Marlborough Sounds and in, um, off Dunedin and Karatani. And um, so to start off, um, we have uh, iwi involvement in all of those three sites, and we started off with a hui at the Marae, and people presented those, those kind of things, and so that's how we started it off. So to take a step back from that, how many people know what ocean acidification is? Okay, vaguely. A few. A few. Okay. So so we know that, that CO2 goes into the atmosphere from burning of fossil fuels, etc. Well, it also dissolves in the ocean. And um, because the ocean is you know, like 71% of the surface area of the planet, a whole lot of it has dissolved in the ocean. Now, when, when um, CO2 dissolves in the ocean, it changes the acidity. So... Um, uh, what happens is the CO2 reacts with water and it produces something called carbonic acid. Now you're all aware of carbonic acid. At some point in your life you would have uh, dr- drunk a carbonated beverage, whether it had hops in it or not. And at some point you would have done a little burp. And when you do a little burp, you will, for a brief moment you'll um, taste metal in your mouth. <laughs> well done. Encore. So that, um, that 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 metallic taste in your mouth is is called carbonic acid, and it's it's one of those chemicals that is there fleetingly, and then it, it, it breaks up into its component parts. And one of those component parts is, of course, that hydrogen ion, which changes the pH. So does everyone remember pH is on a log scale? So like 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 earthquakes. So pH of 7 is neutral, a pH of 8 is, is, um, is, is more basic. That's what the, the ocean is, about 8. Um, and then highly acidic things like you know stomach acid is about pH 2. Like lemon juice is about pH 6. So when you think about lemon juice, you can think about it dissolving things away. So when things are acidic, they can dissolve things away. And that's, that's where the, um, the dissolving of the shells and everything um, uh, comes from. 
And so what we did in, um, uh, at, at these sites was we actually measured um, pH because we didn't have good records of what pH was. Um, although we have long temperature records in the ocean, we don't have good measures of pH. So we have a very expensive instrument that, that measures it every 10 minutes. And we, we had a look in the further Thames and, and we um, uh, have just got pulled that instrument out to analyse uh, the data. And what it does show is that the pH does get very low in the Firth of Thames, particularly in the Firth, because there are up, the CO2 can come from the air, from fossil fuel burning, but it also comes from the land. So the Firth of Thames, of course, has got a large number of rivers that come into it, the um, Piako and the Waiho and, and some other smaller uh, streams. And these, the, the catchment of this, the Firth of Thames is one of the largest, um, highest density um, cattle areas of, of, of New Zealand. And so quite a lot of nutrients comes into the Firth of Thames from those um, farms, intensive dairy farming, they come into the Firth and then those nutrients cause the phytoplankton, so that's the green, the small green parts of the oceans, causes them to, to grow because they've got lots of nutrients and they've got lots of light and it's, in the summer it's nice and warm. Um, and then they have a very short life and when they die, they sink to the bottom and they start to be um, consumed by other organisms. And that consumption produces CO2. So the Firth of Thames, um, you know, where um, the Mariah is that we, were, that we started this hui off with, has got a double whammy. It's got CO2 coming from above, from the air, and it's got CO2 coming from below because of the, the results of... of um, nutrients and, and things. So it's sort of a, a microcosm of really bad, bad things. And so that's that's why it's been the focus of our of our research. Cool. Um, so I mean, I heard this. This is this is the type of um, conversations that we heard that day, and um, that just put me into it. Oh my god, I need to make something. I need to try and um, think about this, and I. Um, sometimes the work comes to me with it pretty quickly and this one it, I wanted to um, I had in my head I've been going to the um, film festival for quite a few years and I wanted to make a short film so um, I thought this would be a good one to make um, a short film to tell a story on um, and so um, I made this short film and it was um, just to go back in terms of intensive dairy farming and um, how I how I bought that and wrapped that um, into work, wove it in was um, I filmed uh, jellyfish with a friend of mine, Sam Ryan. He, he actually filmed it and um, helped me do the audio. I composed um, how that would um, look, how I wanted to, to, to speak to the public and um, uh, got a gel- uh, got fish and gelatine and um, put them into these moulds, these, I think they're 50s or 60s fish moulds. You might all have seen them but on pate um, or salmon. And um, then we froze them and then we, we must have done at least over a dozen and formed them in different parts and let them just disintegrate naturally. Um, formed in all these different areas and um, used the sea from Te Kapa Moana, used the um, domestic garbage rubbish that was from um, Kaiowa, um, which is in Thames, and uh, uh, also my domestic rubbish, um, and let it disintegrate, and that um, was to show the um, ocean acidification, the sounds were of... Um, what would um, acid sound like and um, uh, the birds, the ocean birds that came from Te Kapa and um, the um, Pūriruhua and rain. Um, Pūriruhua brings forth the um, rain, um, the tonga or the mighty musical instrument, so that was the first sound that you hear um, because it was water in its most purest form and um, then you hear the birds and rain and um, the 
birds get louder and louder as the fish starts to calm down and then um, I think there might have been a few more elements but it was I, I sort of I sort of made the audio go like Bambi I wanted it to be like Bambi when the fire comes and all the birds start running away um, so you heard all the birds mount up and all the, we I we got all the audio from all the different birds that you find in Tikapamona and then um, um, as it was um, meeting its disintegr- um, disin- halfway through it's starting to disintegrate I flipped it back so then it um, reversed so it had a cycle and a circular motion um, and uh, that was for my show that I had called Waikawa at uh, Corbin Estate 2015 and I think this site here might have all been present and um, on the walls we had this and um, I love how Gabriella's reconfigured this um, for um, Te Tuhi Gallery here with the blue in the background and um, I think she's done a really good job she had asked me what did I think and I said I trust you I love um, my friend Gabriella's um, curatorial practice and um, every show that I see I really enjoy so um, I gave her the freedom to um, do what she wanted but um, when it came to um, these circles in my head I had this vision of this form and originally I would have liked to have done um, uh, these throughout the whole, a whole room um, but it was quite costly and it was at my cost <laughs> there was no, no funding or anything like that the whole thing, the whole show was always at my cost so um, as an artist you choose and you try and figure out how you would um, put that together. So um, I, I decided that I would um, do one wall um, on one side and on another side I would do another wall. And um, for this show we've put all of the works from the whole show of um, both walls together as one. Um, we, um, how many are on the wall? 48. 48. Yep. And we, we thought of um, we thought of uh, Bulls. Um, uh, our last show was with 60 on one more and there was another with 12 um, for the 12 months for the um, the Maramataka, the calendar for the um, um, 60 for the seconds uh, just to show our um, relationship of man and man, man and man um, so the circular um they are um, the text. I wanted to show, I have a handwritten text too, but I needed it to be just really clear, pack a punch and succinct, and I, and I wanted it to be a reflection of the Anthropocene man's impact upon the land, which is why I chose mirrors. And so um, then we looked at um, text, and, and I wondered about how I would do it, and what I, what I ended up thinking was um, acidic ocean, um, acidic ocean, the Māori word for acidic ocean is he whakawaikawa mōna, And um, so I, for this work, whakawaikawa mōna, I took that whole word and in and, and Reo Māori when you break up, um, when you break up our old tawhito, old ohonu, deep words, they resonate the same energy. They resonate the same each word has a relationship and so out of those out of the um, I chose five to, uh, 12 different words um, and they're up there so you have kawa, salad, kai, food um, haka um, you know because I, I thought in terms of we want a haka when we, when we think about ocean acidification and those ramifications on, on our lands and our seas Ha, the grief of life. Um, kawa kawa, um, it's our rongwa, clears and cleanses. Ika, fish. Um, Waikawa, acidic. Um, wai water, moana sea, and so forth. And uh, the reason I also chose these types of um, mirrors, they're the bathroom mirrors, the swinging ones that, that come on a, on a stand that you could angle them and um, they reminded me of 
when I looked at the mirror and I wanted the reflection, um, the I was thinking about our um, Puraco, um, one of our Puraco or our um, historical tribal stories is um, based on um, one of my tupuna, her name was Hinerehia. She was um, a tūrehu, a uh, fairy. Um, Atupairehu is another name, but we call him tūrehu. And she brought the art of weaving to Parehauraki. She, um, my, one of my tūpuna, he, um, our chief, he fell in love with her and um, he, he married her and he brought her um, back to our lands and she would weave in the night or in the mist um, and, and but at night and she had the most beautiful weaving and our um, wahine just weren't as skilled as she was and she wouldn't um, teach them as all of her all of her gifts all of her skills so one day uh, um, um, they decided to deceive her um, and they battened down all of the um, outside of the windows so that she wouldn't know that the light had come through because the women were always asleep when she was weaving. And so um, she wove into the day, through the night and into the day, and um, she finally got tired and um, our people were watching. And when she found out she, she, she'd been deceived, she was so um, taken back that she um, fled from my people um, and um, in doing so though we were given this, this art of weaving and uh, for us for us the Matakuping pattern is uh, which is the fishnet pattern at uh, in our so is, is an important pattern of who we are and where we come from uh, so for this work I really wanted to encapsulate Body in um, so I, that's why I wanted to use the mirror so that uh, the reflection was through Henerehia and pay tribute to Henerehia uh, who brought the art of weaving to us and um, the Matakupina pattern of fishnet um, and our uh, link to the oceans. And so I thought that the, the using the circular mirrors and that they were cyclic, they were. Um, Round. Um, they were like they they were they looked more you know they're organic um, and then having that reflection of text or kupu against a um, wall could create the inescape of the sea and all the bubbles and and, 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 and be an immersive um, an immersive connection into um, my um, tupuna. And uh, so the yeah we I, I angled them. One always wanted them angled so that they could um, bounce off and um, help to um, remind you of or create that feeling of um, swimming if you were under the water or something like that. Being immersed was important. Um, and the last thing oh. They were, they were also that, um, you know, positive and negative, um, to reference also acidic and alkaline, these dual notions, um, positive and negative, acidic and alkaline, light and dark, um, there were some others too, but I've forgotten them, I'm very surprised I remember all this. Um, <laughs> and um, this work. There were 12 of these works um, originally, but we've included them in this one, which is quite lovely too. And uh, this is a play on words. I've always used text for the 20-something um, years that I've been an artist. Uh, text has been um, extremely important to me. And um, the play on words in terms of our, our real rangatira. And if you look at that, that's our for world. And in the world, everything comes over under the R category or the all category, every single thing, um, and it makes up our world. And um, then you have OA, which is um, ocean acidification. And so um, I quite like that play on the words, and that's why um, that one is in there. Um, I also made it so that it was symmetrical, because Māori art is symmetrical, although this is very contemporary. Um, 
always like to have a reference back to our customer in Māori art. So, so basically we have this instrument which is actually, um, uh, which is the god of the sea? Tangaroa? Tangaroa, yes. Tangaroa took one of our instruments and never gave it back. So, <laughs> <laughs> so somewhere somewhere in uh, Hikapawana is a, is a $15,000 instrument if anyone wants to go and find it. <laughs> yes. So um, the, the Firth of Thames turned out to be a very challenging place to work. Um, I don't know if there are many... Most people don't really go there. They, they, um, uh, there's better fishing in the, out, further out in the Haraki Gulf. You might drive by it if you, if you um, go down the Miranda uh, Road um, towards Thames. But most people don't have much of a contact with the Firth of Thames. Or I guess if you go up the, the um, side of the Coromandel Peninsula. But it's really, really windy there, and it was um, one of those things that we hadn't really anticipated it, that it would be such a challenge to work there because when the because the way that the Firth, the mouth of the Firth opens, um, winds from the north and actually you know various angles of the north and then winds from the south they just rage through um, through there. So uh, Tangaroa took one of our. Um, uh, instruments because the uh, we had this huge rope like this thick rope triple plied wine um, line but because the winds were so um, uh, gas so fierce it started to unravel the three the three braids of the the line and um, uh, so we had to 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 go out there we'd go out there about every month every six weeks we had to go and clean the instrument because it would get fouled with organisms which would affect its measurements. And we had to, the closest boat ramp is at Kawakawa Bay, so we had to go a reasonable distance by boat to be able to get out to the, to the mussel farm. And so we knew that the rope was, was fragile um, and it needed replacing, but because the Firth is um, so filled with sediment and nutrients, it's um, diving there is, counts as a hazardous dive. So. Um, a hazardous dive means you need to get three divers and a boat person who, to be able to go and do the dive to replace the rope. And we couldn't get three people, well, four people, and the weather to cooperate for a really, really long period of time. And then when we went, finally got everybody ready and the weather was good, we went out there and it was gone. So then we had to rebuild a new um, uh, holder for the instrument and we put it out there. And as I said before, it measured the pH every 10 minutes. Um, and so we were able to see um, a cycle during the day. So just like the plants on, on land that you're probably all familiar with, the, so that they photosynthesize during the day. So they take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they use that to make sugars and then they let out oxygen. All the plants in the ocean do exactly the same thing, but they're smaller, or, well, most of them are smaller. There's seaweeds, obviously, which you're familiar with, but there's also lots, lots of um, phytoplankton, which is very tiny plankton. And as a, um, if you leave here today remembering only one thing, the one thing I want you to remember is that every second breath you take, that oxygen comes from the oceans. Okay, so when we think about the importance, where people are getting very upset, of course, about the burning of the forests in the Amazon, but there's also actually bigger fires in, in Africa um, that aren't being reported on as, as much. Um, your, your oxygen, which you require for life, or we all require for life, every second one you take comes from the ocean. So if the oceans are not happy, um, and whether that's from um, uh, nutrient pollution or ocean acidification or anything else, we're we're peril, putting our lives on the earth in peril because 50% of our oxygen is coming from the oceans. So just just remember that. And if you can, 
if you can impart that to as many people as you can, because most people can remember that. Every second breath of oxygen comes from the ocean. <laughs> it's an easy one to remember, and it actually people who don't have that contact with the, with the oceans can, um, can see that. But what we, what we found is that the pH goes, goes down really, really low um, uh, in the autumn. So after those nutrients have come in, all that phytoplankton has grown and you get that green colour to the, to the water in the summer. And then when all that dies and sinks to the bottom, that CO2 is produced by animals consuming that and bacteria consuming that. So then we get additional CO2 coming into the environment. And the Firth of Thames, every, um, in about May or June of each year, the, um, the levels of um, CO2 in the water are what we expect in 2060. So, 40, 40 years from now, it's, it's there, but again, because it's so windy, um, as soon as there's a big storm, then you get some turnover and, and it, it will go back to normal by the next summer. So but why for is that a short period of time? Um, because because that, all that phytoplankton dies and the bacteria start to consume it and they release CO2 as part of the consumption of those, of those phytoplankton. So right now, we, are, we, we, we only have it for a couple of months. But the impact that that's going to have, and, and part of the other part of the project that I've been working on, is to um, see the effects of that, particularly on green shell mussels, which are a really important um, aquaculture species um, in the Marwa Sounds and in the Firth of Thames. Um, and in, um, in the Firth of Thames at the moment, they're having real issues with growing mussels. There's the fact, because ocean acidification is probably a factor there, but it's also temperature. The last couple of um, uh, summers we've had what we call summer heat waves where we have really, really hot um, surface water conditions and the mussels don't like that and they've died. And so, in fact, we took our instrument out of the mussel farm because the mussel farmer said, I can't make any money having this farm here anymore and he took up all his infrastructure. So the impacts of this um, are far-reaching and also... I didn't do this research, but my colleagues at NEWA did. Um, we followed up and did quite a lot of work on um, snapper larvae and on kingfish larvae, and they show the same pattern as we see uh, in fish overseas. So what happens is this, the um, change in pH seems to affect their brains, and they don't respond in the appropriate manner. So they are, um, they are slower to react, so if a predator comes, they don't swim away as quickly um, and in some of the um, uh, larval stages they actually swim towards the predator so they get really confused. So obviously this is not going to have long term um, benefits to, to the juveniles of the species if they're not being scared of predators. Um, so, so, so these are some of the, so we know, I think, I think the, the crux of the study is that in some in some places, like the Firth of Thames, things are really quite bad, and how we can fix that is to stop um, nutrients going into the Firth of Thames. That's a simple, really, really simple thing that we could do to improve um, things. Um, uh, but also, we just have to get stop burning fossil fuels. Really, Does that have, I mean, is there, is there potential for a, a huge impact from what, what uh, Japan may or may not be planning? With? and adding more trouble to the waters uh, by, by reducing the um, I think that um, the Fukushima uh, situation has been a bit like hyped by the media. It's really not that bad and there's, uh, there's actually lots of places in the earth where you actually have natural high levels of isotopes coming in from the rocks around and you, and things. You, and you, um, particularly anecdotal evidence from um, First Nations people up the, the, the west coast of, of, of America um, uh, has, has uh, talked about you know, the death of whales, the death of, of other fish and that sort of thing. And, and, and that was, I guess that was a bit more immediate after the thing. I'm not, I'm not sure that the, you, can, you can say it's a cause and effect thing because I think um, the, uh, a lot of the um, research is suggesting that a lot of the 
unhappiness of the oceans along that coast are also due to increased temperature. They've also had these summer heat waves, and I don't know if you... Um, they've had quite a bit in the media about starfish dying, dying along the shores, and they seem to be getting a disease that's more... Um, affects them more when the, when the temperatures are warmer. And from what I understand, I'm not a whale expert, but my colleague is, and she says that a lot of the whales um, are in poor condition and are dying because of the fact that there's not enough food for them. Yeah. Food. And there's, so, I mean, there's another thing too, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, last night, was, uh, around um, Tuatara um, becoming all male because of, of, of the, the uh, rising temperature as well. So um, they require, if, if we continue on the 2% two, two you know, rise, um, then we're, we're going to lose Tuatara eventually because they require to become female, they require a constant temperature which is around 2 degrees below the so, yeah. so, I mean, I'm just sort of thinking about the whole impacts of this in terms of, of, of both heat but also what, what needs to be done on the farms and on the land. And also, I guess, when it comes down to Charlotte too, is, you know, that connection between, you know, the scientists, the farmers, the artists, you know, to be able to, to, to build awareness around this as well. Eh? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that um, I was talking to Gabrielle about this before. Like, like, a lot of people haven't done science since high school. And so they're actually quite scared of science and they don't think they can understand it. But in fact, that's our fault as scientists if we're not communicating it so people can understand. But people like Charlotte can, can bring, the, bring a whole new group of people um, into the conversation, which I think is, is really, really important. Um, because, you know, the science is a little bit dry and, and we... We are, but most of us are a little bit introverted and not very good at, uh, at getting out in public and doing these kind of things. We are okay at doing it in front of our fellow scientists, but I'm not particularly comfortable doing it. Um, you know, You're doing great. Time. Yeah. Uh, You're doing you, great. You, you should see what's going on. <laughs> 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 um, so, so there's that, but I think that the, the, the art... Because it was actually really interesting. I invited Charlotte last year, it was, wasn't it, 2018? Um, so we have a special program at the university for the, um, it's called the Science Scholars Program, which are the, like the super, superstar science students. And um, uh, to, to try and keep them engaged we, in, in their learning, we give them kind of little extra stuff to do. And I was asked to give a talk um, about... Um, climate change and ocean acidification to them and um, so we, we I did it with two um, three sort of three pronged thing I t- I'd give a talk about the science uh, Charlotte talked about the art and the, and, the, and the work that she had inspired and then we talked and that uh, Westpac the bank had just come out with a report about the cost of doing um, doing um, nothing if we if we waited to do things versus if we did stuff now and the difference in GDP, which you can argue till the cows come home, whether that's a reflection of anything important, but in terms of GDP, it was going to cost something like thirty billion dollars if we waste if we waited um, oh, rather than doing stuff now. And, um, and so we um, we presented this to the students, and it was the art and the finances that convinced them the most. It wasn't the science. They were, these were like uh, 18, 19 year old students and the, the, the bank and Charlotte were much more effective as communicators than I was. And some of them, some of them produced... Yeah, some of them, many of them produced um, artworks about communicating yeah. um, That's um, science, yeah. the science thing. Yeah, I, I guess we are sort of creative in a different way because um, we, we we take take a small part of a bigger problem and try and try and understand uh, that. Whereas, yeah, it is it is creating, but not I have no artistic ability. Really. <laughs> Excuse me, yeah. the muscle yeah. um, effects. How long has that been going on? I mean, those muscle-growing areas have been there for quite some time. Um, it's been um, uh, about five years ago. There were a number of muscle farms that went bankrupt because they couldn't get their muscles to grow. Um, over That was particularly warm summer. And then 
um, things improved, uh, and then then they got um, they got bad again. You know, and the thing is that muscle farming is is a um, you know, I mean, you can buy what a kilo of mussels for like two dollars or something. It's almost nothing. It's cheap as chips. So the mussel farmers um, aren't making a huge amount of money, but they have a lot of infrastructure. They've got mm-hmm. the roads and the boys and the and the boats and all that kind of stuff. But so they, yeah, if their if their mussels aren't growing, or and the one of the other things that we've found in and ocean acidification is that they don't attach to the lines as strongly, so then when there is a storm, a lot of them fall off. I found that the other day on the beach, just like mussels just lying there, but they were full on the beach. Yeah. I've never, you know, never really seen that before. Yeah, so, so the, the, the thread, it's called a viscous thread that attaches them. Usually that's really, really hard to get off. I don't know if you've ever harvested um, mussels on the you know, on the rocky shore, you really have to usually have to give them a pull, but they seem to be much easier to get off. And the mussel farms are having a lot of problem getting them. So when the when the spat, when they're very little, like about this big, they put them on little lines to get them to start growing, and they're getting huge mortality at that stage because they're all falling off the lines onto the bottom. Is it the same with the Yes. Yeah. But they cement the shell rather than having the viscous. Yep. So the industry itself mm-hmm. um, could, I mean, what is the alternative to, I mean, is it better for, for the science side of it to close it down? Well, um, the um, you could not have it in the first attempt, but then, um, uh, then that creates its own issues because then you have to, like off they want to put these big muscle farms way offshore, but then you actually use a lot of CO2 in your boats to go out there to do all of the all of the, the other things. Or you could do what we all should be doing and improve the water quality coming into the into the ocean so that, that we, this becomes less of a problem. I think that, that, that would be the easy easiest thing to do. So that's my question, like you know, as non-farmers or just as, as kind of basic everyday consumers, what can we do? What is what's the what is little steps that we can? Well, I think if everyone just becomes a little bit more aware of their carbon footprint, uh-huh. and that's whether you you know, like I just bought an electric car. Not everybody can afford to do that, mm-hmm. um, but they could walk more to the shops or take public transport or ride a bike. Um, uh, the the simplest thing that most people can do. Um, in terms of reducing your carbon footprint is not to waste food. And that's, that's, that's a simple thing that everybody can do in their own um, homes. Like, like menu plan so that you're not going to have dead broccoli in the bottom of the, of the um, fridge that you throw away. So if you, if you do things like that, um, you're actually making... A, if we all collectively make small steps to not waste food because your broccoli that you bought at 99 cents at Countdown, you know, came from Papakura and it came on a truck and so it was it was grown in a paddock that used um, tractors and blah 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 blah. So when you waste when you waste that food, all of that CO2 has been wasted as well because it hasn't given nutrition. So I think if that's I think that's the this thing that I encourage people to do the most. Walk and take public transport when you can, um, and don't waste food. Those are those are two things that are really really easy to do. What um, are the hard things? <laughs> <laughs> the hard things are dealing with water quality issues, and also getting the government to be to be um, um, uh, more understanding of the fact. Um, I'm part of a group of um, uh, people at the university in this group called Claxon. Um, we're trying to get the government to declare a climate emergency um, uh, because we think that if you say it's an emergency, like other countries have done, the UK, uh, Ireland, Canada, and Argentina, I think is the other one, they've, they've said that we have a climate emergency, so therefore our decision-making should be um, taking consideration of that emergency that we have. Um, it's, it's kind of akin to like if we had you know some natural disaster, we would mobilise all of these things to fix the fix the problem. Um, and um, we're not having any luck because of one party within Parliament, which shall remain nameless. <laughs> 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 
Well, you can guess who. You can guess who it is. So, so um, uh, James Shaw, very happy to, to do this. Uh, Jacinda Ardern has said that she's very happy to do it, but the other, the other party in Parliament is, is blocking is blocking this. And so those are things to... So, for example, that um, Claxon, we have a, um, an open letter to government that you can sign online, um, uh, trying to get people to think about, about doing um, this. Many councils have, the Auckland Council has, Wellington Council, lots of other councils have, but we really need to, you know, to do it at a national level so that we're making decisions that are, that are good for the, the whole country. At one stage, um, all parliamentarians and all New Zealanders will put New Zealand first. Um, <laughs> what I'm interested in, Charlotte, is, is, is where does this take you down in terms of the work that you've been doing on in the past time on ocean acidification, but also in terms of the relationship to other environmental issues, and particularly in relation to Hokkaido? Um, uh, currently working on a... Um, project with my um, iwi, uh, working with the parks to talk about, um, I've got a few projects that are all, all based on retelling our stories through the parks um, and, um, and parehauraku in Ngāti Maru um, ways and um, so that's exciting, that's um, a year away or a few years away, we're still at the wānanga stage. Um, but yeah, unless uh, I'm, you know how I am. <laughs> Wait for whatever comes up. If there's something, as artists, I think we all, as we all know, we 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 start, we listen, we we hear things, and then we respond. And um, yeah, I'm not. I have no idea really when what what's what's next, what the next exhibition is, or where it comes. But I know that if something gets under my skin, that's it. It'll work its way out. Breathe first. <laughs> 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 I won't be breathing a little bit. <laughs> 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 